Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skorup of the Mackinac Center. This show is brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism. You can learn more about how we provide citizens with news to expose government overreach and abuse at frankbeckmancenterforjournalism.com. We have a great show this evening. Congressman Bill Heisinga from the west side of Michigan joins us to talk about the state of the economy and the impact that Washington's huge amount of spending is having. Michael Shostak of the Michigan Republican Party and a Bloomfield Township trustee joins us to talk about unity in the GOP ranks. As our kids head back to school, we'll tackle the question of whether we actually have a teacher shortage in Michigan with Taylor DeSormo of MLive. And Mike Lefebvre of the Mackinac Center unveils his new research on which cities in Michigan are the most freedom-loving. We'll be back after a brief break with more of the Mackinac Michigan Show on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac on Michigan show brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jarrett Skorup. And uh, before we get started, we're giving away a free window decal today, a small white sticker. Uh, put it on your water bottle. Maybe your kid's backpack. Get creative. Uh, text WJR to 50155 and we'll drop one in the mail for you. Our first guest for the show uh, Representative Bill Heisinga from the west side of Michigan. He also sits on the House Financial Services Committee, joins us. Bill, thanks for coming on. Hey, Kelly, good to be with you. And uh, uh, I don't know, it sounds like I maybe need to get one of those stickers. It sounds like a good secret society of <laughs> uh, clear-minded, clear-thinking people here in Michigan. That's exactly. Uh, that's, uh, hopefully we're getting more of those stickers out and around. Uh, but uh, based on what I'm seeing happening here, in Michigan and across the country, I'm not. I'm not sure there's as many clear-eyed, clear-thinking people. There aren't, but uh, <laughs> we'll send you instructions for the secret handshake too. <laughs> All, right. All right. So we. Yeah. How about just walking up to people and say, "Do you have a clue?" <laughs> Most people don't have a clue. No, it's it's weird times, isn't it? Uh, uh, you are very in tune, Congressman, to uh, you know the economy. You sit on financial services. Wanted to chat a lot about that and and what's going on. And obviously, it's a weird time. We have relatively low unemployment, but palpably high inflation. We have a steep interest yeah. rate hike coming. Uh, supply chain problems. I mean, just it keeps going on. There's fewer people working, I was reading the other day, than in 1977. Um, yeah. What's your general take and on what's going on? What's your view? And also, what's the view of just your colleagues in Congress right now on the health of the economy? I mean, are they as concerned as the people are? Yeah, uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely uh, right. Um, there are multiple flags going up all over the place. In fact, this was interesting. Uh, September 7, Gallup uh, had a poll uh, that now over half of Americans, 56 percent, uh, say that inflation is now causing them, quote, financial hardships. Mm. Now, so think of that. Uh, over half of the country, 56 percent is saying, wait a minute, what's going on is is forcing me to make uh, different decisions about purchasing groceries and gas and whether I can take my kids on a vacation before school starts and whether 
or we're going to be able to have all the school supplies that we really wanted and all those things. And, um, you know, on a, on a, on a, a little higher level, uh, we have had these debates in financial services committee here for a couple of years now. And this goes back to quantity more than a couple of years, I guess this goes back to quantitative easing and what has, uh, what was going on, uh, on there. And look, I, I'm, I'm just a kid from Zealand, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm no, uh, I'm no PhD economist. Uh, but I got to tell you, the number of PhD economists that have come before our committee telling us, no, no, there's no problem. Don't worry about it. We really don't have a debt issue. We really don't have a spending issue. Look, we, we had low in inflation. We've had reasonable price stability. Uh, so don't worry your pretty little head about it. Well, guess what? Uh, it was time to worry a few years ago, and it's certainly time to worry now. And uh, to, to raise this flag on spending, not to mention the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, monetary policy side of this, but if we just focus on the spending, you look at the uh, just jet fuel that has been thrown on the inflationary fires here uh, over the last couple of years with trillions of dollars in spending. And uh, what, uh, what does this Biden administration want to do? They want to double down and spend even more. And I guess if you're a, you know, a, a, a Keynesian, I mean, this actually, I think this policy makes Keynesians blush. Yeah. Uh, but if you are a big uh, spending liberal, uh, that's all you know how to do, right? I mean, that's just, well, you are that uh, hammer, then everything looks like a, a spending nail for you to pound into the ground. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is Jarrett, uh, congressman, and probably the most famous saying in economics is there, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch from Milton Friedman. And yeah. anytime you're spending, it's getting paid for. It's paid for in higher taxes or it's getting paid for with inflation. And, and we're learning that lesson now. Um, so I, I saw recently that the the uh, Republicans who are in the minority right now have rolled out their commitment to America. Um, this is kind of the play on the contract to, with America back in 1994 when Republicans ultimately swept swept the House for the first time in decades. What's in that plan? Uh, what are you hoping to achieve with that? Yeah, and, and uh, let's take a step back here because uh, uh, we all know that uh, we get these very uh, public job reviews, is what I like to call it, every two years as we uh, go into these elections. And uh, having a strategy of, we ain't those guys, uh, that doesn't last very long, right? And I think that's what the Democrats had uh, two years ago. Uh, hey, we're not them. We're not Donald Trump. We're not whatever. And, uh, and, and they, they think that uh, that brought them uh, success. Uh, well, flip that around. You know, the Republicans, in, in my opinion, we need to be more than just we're not them. And uh, that's what this is uh, about. The whole idea is to present the American people with a plan. Here's uh, here's broadly what we are going to do when you put us into the majority. That is the idea of this, is to make sure that people understand when they are making that choice in November, uh, here is what our commitment to uh, them is uh, as we move forward in that majority. So you sit on a task force with that. Um, I assume it's economically focused. Uh, 
is inflation sort of the number one thing that Republicans are looking at? Because I, I was reading this morning, Bill, that uh, that we're looking at, if you look at the polls, between five and 39 seats picked up by Republicans, which should give control of the House to the Republicans, to, to you and your colleagues. Um, it seems inflation needs to be the biggest push there. Uh, is that is that the big thing coming out of, of the you and other campaigns going on around the country right now? Or are there other major economic issues you're talking about? So, yes, it, you know, here is uh, is is the is the facts. Um, we know that inflation, the economic situation is uh, number one on uh, on Americans minds pretty much across the nation, across all the districts. Um and uh, and close behind that is uh, is is crime and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and then uh, certainly abortion is going to be a significant issue around the country as well as it's tied into health care. But that number one issue almost consistently all the way across the board is what is happening in the economy. And um, and, and there's so many ties into that. Right. Our energy policy certainly has yeah. uh, increased our inflation. Uh, our tax policy has increased that. Our spending policy has increased that uh, that rate of inflation. So all of those things are sort of this Gordian knot of issues that uh, you really can't untangle from each other. If you guys take over the House, uh, how do you think the Financial Services Committee uh, will focus the, the next Congress? Do you think that you'll be much more tough on what's going on at the Fed and in the White House on these issues? Well, certainly, you know, we, we have been, if you uh, look at those uh, hearings, whether we have uh, Jay Powell in uh, mm-hmm. or, uh, or anybody from the White House, um, first of all, uh, we can't really get anybody in from the White House because <laughs> Maxine Waters doesn't want them to come in and right. doesn't want to subject them to the type of questioning that, uh, that we will put to them. Uh, now, Jay Powell is required by law to do a couple of hearings a year, Humphrey mm. Hawkins Act and some other things, where he has to come in. Janet Yellen, as Secretary of Treasury, has to come in uh, as well. And uh, so those are really our only opportunities. The Securities and Exchange Commission actually falls underneath uh, the purview of the subcommittee that I'm the ranking member, that I'm the, that the, I'm the lead Republican on. Yeah. And uh, and. We cannot get Gary Gensler in. Uh, he's going to go to the Senate in September, but he's not going to come to the House. Friendly turf. Uh, and, and we can't get his deputies, the head of enforcement, for example, uh, to come in because he won't give them permission to do that. And uh, meanwhile, Gensler uh, at all and all of his friends at the Securities and Exchange Commission are pushing the bounds of, uh, of the, uh, the the traditional role of the SEC in ways no one could have imagined. Just look at what he's doing with crypto. And uh, and they've been unaccountable. So, I, frankly, I want to issue him a permanent parking pass so he can come in uh, for those uh, oversight hearings that we're going to do. And if we have to do subpoenas and we have to certainly do the, uh, the, the push in the, within – uh, the, uh, the the circles of media that will listen, uh, we've got to shame them into coming. Congressman Bill Heisinga, we got to leave it there, but we so appreciate your thoughts uh, on the economy as, as we try to make sense of it all. Hey, thanks, guys, and uh, thank you for your voice and what you're doing and bringing some common sense uh, ideas 
and uh, and practicality to what's going on in the economy. So I appreciate that. Hey, thank you. We, we do our best. Well, uh, we'll be back with more after a brief break on the Mackinac Michigan Show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jared Scora. And uh, once again, we're giving away a free window decal in the shape of the state of Michigan. Uh, slap it on your laptop, back of your car, get creative. Just shoot us a text. Text us WJR to 50155. We'll mail one out to you. Uh, We're going to move over and talk about the state of the race and particularly the Republican Party in Michigan here. Uh, We're joined by Michael Shostak. He is the administrative vice chair of the party and also an elected official in Bloomfield Township. He's a Bloomfield Township trustee. Um, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Kelly, Jarrett, thanks for having me. So we just got, in full disclosure, I was there too, we just got out of a Republican Party convention last month. Uh, there was, there was walking into that, looked like there was going to be a huge fight. You sort of had the grassroots side ready to go head-to-head with the establishment side of the party. And what was interesting to me was both the sides of the party were sort of still pro-Trump in a way. It wasn't even about the issues as much. Um, But when the dust settled after all of it, it seemed to be quite a bit of unity. There wasn't a challenge to Shane Hernandez being the lieutenant governor pick. Um, But a lot of people continue to view the Republican Party as very fractured right now. How do you see the Republican Party right now? Okay. Uh, I think that going into the convention, there was definitely um, some thought that there was going to be this establishment versus grassroots um, problem. And we started to see it at the beginning of the convention. You know, Ron Weiser gavels the convention and he's booed (laughs) incessantly. Um, But I think that, you know, ultimately the leadership of the party and that's leadership on, if you want to call it the establishment side, you know, Ron and uh, Michonne and, you know, the co-chairs. Uh, as well as uh, Matt Taperno and you know other leaders of what you might call the grassroots side, came together and uh, we avoided a, a an extended bloodbath uh, internally, and we uh, came together unified behind Shane Hernandez and of course Tudor Dixon, who's our uh, governor and lieutenant governor uh, candidates. Uh, Matt Taperno, Christina Caramo, our uh, attorney general and secretary of state candidates. Um, and I think, you know, in the end, I think there was a very good sense of, you know, we're united behind our ticket. Um, there was no, you know, contest to any of the candidates that were endorsed in April. There was mm-hmm. some concern that maybe some people would be challenging, you know, a, a university board seat or something like that. Um, none of that happened. Um, and so I think we left the convention definitely feeling a greater sense of unity than I think people thought when we came into it. Yeah. We're a couple of weeks out now. Um, I mean, really the news, it seems has been dominated. You know, governor Whitmer has more money than Tudor Dixon. Um, she's running to the middle on a lot of things. She's talking about how she hasn't hiked taxes and yet she spent more money on all these variety of things. What's your sense of, of this race? I mean, is, President Biden's still very unpopular in Michigan. Um, Governor Whitmer certainly pulling better than he is. 
where's this race sitting at right now and um, how late are we in the game? Is there time for things to change? Um, what's your perspective on that? So, Jared, I think that there definitely is still time. We're still, you know, in the, in the beginning part of September. Absentee ballots don't go out until the end of September. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the polling is, is a little bit mixed. Um, some polling uh, has uh, Governor Whitmer, you know, far ahead. Others have it, a, a, you know, just a stone's throw, a much closer race. Obviously, the financial disparity between the two campaigns is an issue. Uh, also, you know, most of the money that's been spent so far by the governor's campaign is actually coming from out of state. It's coming from the DGA, the Democratic Governors Association. They've been, you know, hammering uh, Dixon on the uh, TV and radio about uh, her abortion stance. And uh, I, I think, you know, anytime you're dealing with an incumbent governor who's running for reelection, it's it's really a litmus test about that governor. It's not, you know, it's it's our job in, in the in the opposition to put up a, a candidate that is qualified and 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 would make a good governor. But it's ultimately going to be, you know, each and every Michigan voter deciding: Am I better off than I was four years ago when Governor Whitmer took over, uh, or am I not? And would I like to go in a different direction? And I think that, you know, our roadmap as Republicans. The, you know, the polling says Biden, President Biden is very unpopular. Uh, obviously, we've got inflation at generational highs, rents at all time highs, homeownership declining, interest rates going up. Um, you know, uh, recent polling showing that well over half of Americans feeling that the financial hardships that they're facing as a result of the inflation and the interest rates are affecting their daily life. I mean, and, and so what we're doing uh, from, from the uh, Republican side is really painting, you know, Governor Whitmer as part of the Biden coalition uh, and, and his policies that have led us to where we're at. And, you know, what Michigan voters are going to have to decide is, are, am I better off than I was four years ago? Um, can I, you know, can I, uh, do I have a job? Do I, am I getting paid uh, an amount that allows me to live and cover my basic necessities given the rise in inflation? I mean, you know, gas is 25% higher than it was a year and a half ago. I think milk is double what it was a couple of years ago. Um, you know, these are these are real, <laughs> in a literal sense, bread and butter issues to, to Americans and, and to Michiganders. And ultimately, it's going to be a, uh, a test of, uh, of the governor's uh, popularity and her and her success in office, and you know, uh, you mentioned that she that she's talking about how she didn't hike taxes. Well, she tried to. Yeah, she did. You yeah. know, with the with the gas tax, and we blocked that. Uh, Shane Hernandez is one of the leaders in, in making sure that we blocked that. Um, and every time that the Republican legislature has put a tax cut in front of her, she has vetoed it. And this is kind of the challenge, right, Michael? Because these are th if you're in the know, you get it. If you're a Republican candidate, you, you get this sense already. And a lot of these things are things that just people feel, even if they're not political. They get the sense that inflation is a problem for them. And yet the framing and the messaging of the campaigns right now, you know, Whitmer is totally defining who Tudor Dixon is, but no one is defining who Whitmer is. And everybody's sort of out of COVID. Well, the inflation's Biden's problem. And so there's no guns pointed at 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 
at you know figuratively speaking at uh, especially in these times I don't want to say anything yeah. more than that yeah. figuratively speaking at Gretchen Whitmer saying this is who you have been this is what you are not being held accountable for this is why people should vote against you and and yet everybody knows why they shouldn't vote for Tudor Dixon right now and there's one ad that just says it over and over again right isn't that a problem in the long run it, it definitely is but I think that you know, coming out of a very hotly contested primary, uh, you know, candidates are are, are usually um, low on cash. Yeah. And so her first priority after securing the nomination was to go out and raise money. Yeah. Uh, raise, you know, both hard money that she can use in a regulated fashion in, in her campaign, as well as uh, the outside money that can be used, you know, to, to attack Whitmer. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things that we're doing that we're really focusing on from the MIGOP's perspective, is voter outreach, voter contact. Uh, we've already, you know, as of a few weeks ago, already uh, made face-to-face or telephone call conversations with well over a million voters all over the state. And that's where you see people talking about Whitmer's record. And in those phone calls from volunteers at all of our victory centers around the state, they're making phone calls, they're talking, going door to door and talking to Michigan voters directly. And, and that's where you see that. So, yes, we don't have the funds. The The Dixon campaign doesn't have the funds to be on TV as often as, as Whitmer and, and, and her allies are. But, you know, we're doing we're definitely doing a grassroots uh, ground game to uh, to do that. And but ultimately, I think, you know, where this election is going to turn is going to be on whether the propositions that are on the ballot, whether it's the, you know, the voting rights uh, 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 amendment or the uh, abortion amendment, if that's going to drive out turnout on, on the on the liberal side and and if people are going to not bifurcate their votes, if they're going to vote Republican right. and still support, you know, if they're if they're a moderate. Right. Maybe they support the abortion and the voting rights amendment, but they still vote for a Republican state rep and a Republican state senator. Uh, and so we're also working very hard to make sure that we maintain our majorities in the legislature, because if Whitmer were to uh, you know, be reelected, we got to make sure that we have that firewall in the legislature uh, to protect uh, against her or we're going to have a, you know, a Biden-esque uh, you know, a couple of years. Yeah, you can, um, you can believe that the taxes will be raised after yes. that. Yeah. Michael Shostak, we got to leave it there. Administrative Vice Chair for the Michigan Republican Party and Bloomfield Township Trustee. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, Kelly. Thank, Thank you, Jared. Have a great day. Thanks. And we'll be back after a brief break with more of the Mackinac Michigan Show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jared Skorup. And before we get going with our next segment, if you guys would like a free window decal in the shape of the state of Michigan, it's a little white sticker for your car, your water bottle, shoot us a text. Text WJR to 50155, and we'll drop one in the mail for you. Uh, it's school year. School's getting underway. Uh, we're constantly hearing about how there's a teacher shortage in Michigan. And we're bringing in Taylor DeSormo from MLive, a reporter who's done some research on this. Taylor, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey, Taylor. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been loving uh, MLive has really been uh, diving into um, some investigative pieces. I'm not sure if that's uh, totally your role there, but I always enjoy kind of the 
longer form investigative pieces uh, from the media in particular, especially during election season when it seems like we're just getting tons of stuff put out by the different campaigns. Um, you had a really interesting piece recently um, talking about the teacher shortage here in Michigan, which has been something we've seen a lot in the media, we've seen it a lot nationally. Can you tell us uh, how you covered that, what you found? Right, right. Well, there's definitely been a lot of people, not just in Michigan, but nationwide, asking, do we have a teacher sh shortage right now? And and most people are saying yes, for sure, definitely. And there's there's lots of school districts that would say that as well. Um, but some of the numbers are a little bit conflicting in Michigan. Um, ultimately, there are shortages in certain districts and there are certain types of teachers. But the interesting thing is uh, last year we had 116,000 teachers in Michigan. Um, and that's more than we've had any time in the past 15 years. Um, and five years ago, we only had 98,000 teachers. So um, almost 20,000 more teachers, all while our student enrollment is declining. We're about 200,000 students less than we were just a few years ago. So it's interesting. We were digging into the nuance of the teacher shortage. Um, there's there's lots to get into, obviously, but there's a lot fewer students that are graduating from teacher programs in Michigan, um, and that's kind of contributing um, to to some of the things we're seeing. And and a lot of it's been part of the pandemic, and a lot has been with inflation and people changing roles and changing districts and things like that. So a lot of the same things that have been hitting um, everybody in America are also hitting the schools. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic to me. Um, my, my parents are uh, now newly retired teachers. My wife was a public school teacher um, who left the profession when we had kids. And I was, I was talking to a friend about this recently and just said, a lot of times people just don't understand we have, we have more than 100,000 teachers who are certified in Michigan who are not teaching. They're, they're in other professions. And so on the shortage angle, um, I feel like we hear this a lot. We hear we've got a shortage of road builders. We've got a shortage of constructors. We've got a shortage of food workers. And to me, it's always what you keyed in there on. Are we talking about we actually don't have people that are qualified to do the job, or are we talking about we're just having a tough time, you know, hiring enough people and getting them in. And then, you know, because the solution to that is is very different. There's a different solution of we need more people in our teachers mm -hmm. program versus we just have to offer people, you know, salaries, or we have to move people around and make the labor environment a little bit more flexible. But you said you're, you're finding in some areas there's a true shortage, and but overall we're having more teachers than ever. Right. And, and like, one example is, is special ed teachers. We're, we're down... Uh, a little more than a percent from last year, and a lot of places will say, yeah, we're, we're really having trouble finding those types of specialty teachers or, or counselors, like school counselors and, and things like that. Um, and it's a little bit more problematic in, in rural areas and urban areas compared to suburban, but it, it is quite similar across the board. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, some of the teachers or the districts out there say, oh, maybe – um, Ten years ago, we used to have 15 people apply for a vacancy, and now we're having three. So, so they're still filling that vacancy, but but maybe mm -hmm. there's not not as many choices for them to to pick the to pick up the litter, you know. Yeah, and you know, my my wife is an elementary school teacher. My sister is a special ed teacher, and one of the craziest things to me, looking at public policy, is you have you go through these teachers have union contracts. They have these step scales. And they only, you know, your your pay is based on seniority and if you have a master's degree or not, nothing else mm -hmm. uh, traditionally, almost everywhere. And an easy solution to me is just 
obviously the areas that you have tougher time finding people, these physics teachers, these special ed teachers, certain English language, we should pay them more. We should pay them more than we mm -hmm. should other teachers. And when my wife applied for a job when we moved to Midland, um, that was back in 2009, there were over 200 applicants coming in with her mm -hmm. for two special ed positions. And it was, it was crazy. But she was coming in for the same as a special ed job where, you know, there was only five or six applicants even then. And now probably they're lucky if they get one or two. Right, right. Yeah, teacher pay is definitely an interesting thing, too. We, we looked at that in our story as well. Um, so Michigan ranks 16th of the 50 states for highest teacher salary at about $65,000. So you think, okay, that's pretty good. We're, we're better than average, right? Um, but in the past 10 years, wage increases, Michigan ranks 49th of 50, and only Nevada is worse. So wages are up 4% in that time, and when you adjust that for inflation, it's negative uh, 15%. So there hasn't been a lot of change in teacher salary. And, and then when you look at new teacher salary, too, for people who are just starting out in the profession, Michigan ranks 40th out of 50 um, at about $37,000. So um, it, it's we, we used to be a little bit better, but it seems like we, we aren't really tracking in the right direction right now. That does sound mm. uh, the opposite direction, especially with inflation. Um, right. Uh, and you still, we, we still see some success, right? Detroit public schools have, have opened. They say they're, they're filled up. I, I know I have a friend who was a teacher there, and he ended up uh, leaving DPSCD, and, and he's teaching in a completely different capacity. So it speaks to the to teachers wanting to leave the profession, probably out of COVID as well. But uh, it's fascinating, and we hope we can fill the class sizes. And, and I'm, I agree 100%. You, you raise that wage, you'll get better qualified people in there to help the next generation. Um, Taylor DeSormo with M MLive, we appreciate you coming on. And uh, check out his piece. I encourage all our listeners to do that. Uh, especially the ones on the schools. Uh, it's, it's been fascinating to, to hear a counter-narrative than what we currently hear out there. Taylor, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I Thank appreciate you. it. And we'll be back after a brief break with more of the Mackinac Michigan Show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jared Scora. And once again, we're giving away a free window decal today, a small white sticker shaped like the state of Michigan. Uh, slap it on a water bottle, laptop, wherever you like. Just shoot us a text, WJR. At 50155, we'll drop one in the mail for you. Uh, our next guest uh, has a new study out that is uh, probably pretty fascinating to people who live around the state of Michigan. You know, we in America like to believe, because of our principles in the Constitution, that there were, you know, we're the freest country on earth. We also know that by a lot of metrics, uh, we are not. Uh, and uh, in Michigan, I was reading we're ranked 34th in the nation for economic freedom. Uh, but what about within Michigan? What about the towns within Michigan? We're joined by Mike Lefebvre of the Mackinac Center, who recently dove into the data on this topic to determine the economic freedom of Michigan's cities. Mike, thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, what what did you find? I mean, what what are the freest parts of Michigan, and how do you break up the state like this? Because a lot of obviously a lot of the laws and everything that we live by are state laws. So, uh, what are the main findings in the report? Well, the great news is the federal government does a census of local governments every five years, and they make that data available to the public. 
we use that data to create an index that we think serves as a proxy for economic freedom or a lack thereof. So in order to uh, look at where Michigan fits in the universe of metropolitan areas and how they rank in terms of freedom or lack thereof, we went out and grabbed um, statistical data on tax burdens, spending, and labor market freedom measures for every one of the 383 metropolitan statistical areas in the country. And then we drilled down into Michigan to see where we fit in that universe of metropolitan areas. And we found, unfortunately, that only one of our 14 metropolitan statistical areas performs better in terms of their economic freedom rank than the average of all the other metropolitan statistical areas in the country. That's, that's the bad news in this study. The good news is Midland was above average and performed above average in all three of the areas for which we have data. And, um, you know, that's, a, that's good news for Midland, but uh, more needs to be said about um, what the other metropolitan statistical areas aren't doing that other MSAs in the country are. Among the top three performers was Midland, Ann Arbor, and Grand Rapids, and the bottom performers were Bay City, Flint, and Battle Creek. I'm fascinated that Ann Arbor made the top three of economic freedom. Having resided there uh, a couple of times in my life, uh, it, it felt like that's not how the city operates, <laughs> nor, nor is it right. the guiding principle enshrined within the, you know, the soul of Ann Arbor, the, the republic thereof. Um, how, how did that? How did you circle that square? Yeah, it's not just Ann Arbor. I was taken aback by where the Detroit MSA ended up, and even the Grand Rapids one in some mm. of our uh, calculations. The important thing to remember here is that we're not looking at a city. We're looking at many cities within a metropolitan statistical area as defined by the federal government. So Ann Arbor uh, includes, you know, uh, Ypsilanti as well. It includes other cities in the calculation, not just Ann Arbor. In addition, we make calculations to try to control for uh, the presence of, say, the University in Michigan, uh, the University of Michigan or uh, Saginaw Valley State, wherever there might be some dominant government employer, we try to make calculations so that that um, influence is controlled for to a greater degree than if we had just identified Ann Arbor, for instance. Um, and. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about the Ann Arbor area is that they perform very well on things like our minimum wage calculation. Now, the state has a minimum wage mandate that's across the state. There are no local mandates. But we actually have a variable in our study that measures the minimum wage burden as full-time income as a percentage of per capita personal income. That way, we look at the minimum wage as a binding constraint on labor and on business in that area. When you can charge $20 for a Reuben at Zingerman's, you're going to be able to pay above <laughs> the minimum wage. So the minimum wage mandate right. in the state is not a constraint in Ann Arbor, but it is a constraint in Saginaw Benton Harbor. Mm, that, that adds up. Thanks for putting that in layman's terms. <laughs> so, Mike, who, who do we need to be like? Um, what, what are the other metro areas around the country that we need to replicate? I'm glad you asked, because eight of the top 10 economic freedom scores in the nation go to Florida. Mm. There are two in Texas. Conversely, the areas we don't need to emulate are California. Six of the worst 10 MSA scores in our index 
uh, come from California, uh, two from New York, one from New Jersey, and to my surprise, Rapid City, South Dakota. I'm still trying to get my head around that particular one hmm. because South Dakota does very well if you just look at states overall. I think it's a top five or ten state in terms of economic freedom, according to Canada's Fraser Institute. And yet this one metropolitan area in a uh, state that's otherwise very free economically uh, gets a very low score. Mike, what are some of the things that you, you you think that we could do in Michigan? And I know you you have so many ideas. We could dedicate a whole hour to it. But what are a couple of the things that could really help, in particular, on this economic freedom index to raise up Michigan cities? Are there things that local officials could do to change their score? For example. Well, sure. Uh, I've always said that um, officials need to practice or take an economic Hippocratic oath and first do no more harm. Just exercising some current restraint on where they are now might end up a couple years down the road having a benefit that will have them climb our rankings in terms of economic liberty and pay off in terms of their local unemployment rate, uh, inter um, uh, metropolitan area migration, the population growth, and uh, employment growth as well. Uh, you know, say for instance, uh, not raising property taxes or just keeping them where they are and letting other units raise theirs. Uh, the, the list that goes on, you know, the, uh, the Mackinac Center has made many policy recommendations at the state and local level, and they all come down to allowing greater. Uh, free and voluntary association between people and other people and businesses as well. It's, it really comes down to um, those types of simple policy choices. And you can find out more about uh, Mike LaFave's work by going to Mackinac.org. Mike, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have here on the Mackinac on Michigan show. You can check out this show and all our others by heading to Frank Beckman Center for Journalism.com or TheGreatVoice.com. Thanks for listening and have a great night. Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio.